HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Vivino. Discover and buy wines wherever you are. Visit vivino.com heritage to stock up. Hi, I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week's theme is youth. We'll have a report on how migrant children separated from their families at the U.S. border are being housed and fed. Right now, what we're very worried about is just the influx of kids created by this zero-tolerance policy. We'll also look into a program that's ensuring free summer meals for kids are only a text message away. Summer is the hungriest time of year for a kid who may not have that safety net of school meals. We discover a new home economics curriculum. I'm not trying to raise a generation of chefs. I'm trying to raise a generation of nourishers who can nourish themselves. And we meet a teen chef who's talked his way into several of New York's top kitchens. I never try and be, like, annoying about it, but I really want to get my foot in the door. Tune in to this week's episode of Meet and Three, available at heritageradionetwork.org and wherever you get your podcasts. on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, July 11th, 2018. This is the 183rd episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a legendary food and wine writer with the New York Times, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip. Later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to be a great fact checker. In a time where speed may seem to take precedence over accuracy, it is good to be reminded that truth is actually still most important. Let's all slow down and make sure that we get the facts right. Being the first to tell a story or post breaking news is only as good as the credibility of the information itself. Exclusives actually have no value if the facts are wrong. 
so be meticulous and always check content before hitting the send button. It's essential in keeping an honest world. That's a fact. And that's my tip today. Now, I am extremely honored to have my guest here with me in the studio. It's someone who actually really doesn't need much of an introduction. She is one of the most respected journalists in our industry. It is Florence Fabricant, a longtime food and wine writer for the New York Times. Florence writes the weekly front burner and off the menu columns, as well as the pairings column, which appears alongside Eric Asimov's monthly wine reviews. Florence is the author of 12 cookbooks. She is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Smith College with an MA in French from NYU Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. Without further ado, welcome. Hi. Hi. I'm so, so excited to have you here. So thank you. Let's start out with your background. How did you get into writing and did you always want to be a journalist? No, I got into it kind of by accident. I was kind of between jobs. Uh, I had this degree in French and uh, uh, had worked in advertising back in the Mad Men days, which was really kind of exciting. I worked for an, uh, an agency that's uh, it was pretty big at the time, Compton, and Procter & Gamble was one of the main clients, and they had a lot of food accounts. And that was in the days when uh, if they wanted to photograph a cake made with Duncan Hines cake mix and make it look great, they used two boxes of cake mix. Mm -hmm. And the consumer didn't know. And it was before the FTC started cracking down on that kind of thing. We had a lot of fun. But then I became a stay-at-home mom for a few years and then casting about for what to do. Um, I had always been interested in food. I'd cooked. My parents, back in the day, even when I was quite young, uh, starting then, were foodies. My mother was a very good cook. My parents went to top restaurants all the time, took me along. I loved it. <clears throat> if we went to the theater, we lived in, in Westchester, outside Manhattan. And if uh, we went to the theater, for example, the routine was to have dinner in the dining room at the Algonquin in the Oak Room. Okay. And uh, the thing I always ordered was the chicken under glass because I love the way the waiter would pick up this glass dome mm -hmm. from my food. That was long before they started with the whole silver dome routine in Nouvelle Cuisine. <laughs> but it brought back memories. And uh, so... I, we had a house in East Hampton, and uh, the summer bounty was wonderful, and I loved cooking with it, and the local newspaper didn't have a food column. So I thought, maybe I'll do that. Uh, a graduate program I was looking at didn't materialize, and so I started writing for the East Hampton Star, and about six months later started getting assignments from the New York Times and never looked back. Oh, wow, so so that's what led you to well, the New York Times was that a uh, the publication a part of the New York Times or no? They were separate, separate. Oh, the East Hampton Star was separate. Okay, that's what I thought. But you yeah. got you got I got the, a, the New York Times reached out to you because exactly. they saw what you were doing, right? And they're like, we want that. Yeah, and <laughs> I think that Craig Claiborne was instrumental in that uh, uh, scenario. Yeah, for sure, because he was out there. In, in bringing you on board, so no, he read the East Hampton Star. Oh. He was in East Hampton. Okay, that's where he, you know he had an apartment in Manhattan, but a house in East Hampton. So, 
So when you joined the New York Times, what what was your column, or how many? How often were you writing? Well, I started occasionally, and then started doing restaurant reviews for Long Island restaurants, and then gradually it segued into off the menu and the front burner column in its latest iteration, but. Uh, it started out, I think there was food notes and then food stuff. And then, you know, it, it changed its name along the way on a number of occasions, depending on, you know, every editor wants to do something different. <clears throat> right. So so you said you did reviews for a little bit. Yeah. Do you, would you, did you enjoy that? Would you go back to doing reviews? Well, it was interesting. I learned a lot. Uh, it was a way to socialize with people who at the time uh, had less money perhaps than they do now and would love a free meal because uh, I picked up the tab. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I got to know the restaurant business very closely from that experience because when you go in to do a review, you don't go in like an ordinary diner. You are there to observe and you're working. And let me tell you, it's not always fun. Yeah, well, I mean, I think people think it is, but I think I think being a reviewer is really hard. It is very hard. I wouldn't want to do it again. Okay, good to know. <laughs> so, so how did you... And, or and, and and getting into how do you now get your information? I mean, back then, were you? Did you start getting pitched by publicists? Did you? Were you just seeking out things that things that interested you to write in their in their well, columns? Well, in terms of the restaurants that I picked, or in terms of what went into my columns? Actually, both. Well, the restaurants I picked, uh, I got information, but. Um, we would be driving out to East Hampton, and on the way, we would often stop to dine. And I kind of had my nose to the ground on, on what was opening. Uh, I mean, to this day, if I'm driving on a city street, it's a little dicey because I'm always looking to see what looks like it's opening or closing. Oh, there's a new whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always got, you know, my head on a swivel kind of thing. And uh, publicists did start to reach out to me before very long. Right. And I got to know who to trust and who not to trust, and I got to know what was a worthwhile pitch and what wasn't and what was mere hype and became critically very selective. And I would say that I built a deep reservoir of trust on the part of the New York Times that continues to this day. They trust my judgment. They trust my taste. Editors have said that to me, and I'm pleased and flattered. And, you know, I don't stand for a lot of nonsense. Uh, Pitches from publicists who tell me this is the first restaurant or the that's ever done XYZ or the first product that's ever used uh, mushroom stems or I don't know what. Uh, Most of the time, if they do their homework, they'll discover I've already written about it. Right. So uh, what boggles my mind, I mean, playing off what your tip was about getting the facts, not only getting the facts straight, but digging a little for the background and not just, re- ju- not just believing the client's pitch. And I can't understand why more publicists don't do that. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, my, my tip 
I, I was thinking of you because I feel a lot of publications I know, they don't fact check. They don't on that end, you know, like doing the, the, the uh, making sure everything's right. And, and so I think on both ends, yeah, you need to be knowledgeable and be, be telling the truth and like, yeah, and do your research. And also not fudge it. I mean, uh, I can't tell you how often I get pitches from a quote unquote new restaurant. And I'll, my first question is when did the restaurant open? Um, eight or 10 months ago, but it's a new client for us. Please. Trust me. I know. I know because I get, as a publicist, I get these restaurants. I, when they're four or five months old, they, they're new to them. But I'm like, you're not new to the media. But yeah, being truthful is very, very important. And well, how, how important is it to you to be breaking the news on a new restaurant? And would you, would you consider writing about the four or five month old restaurant? You know, it depends. I love to get an exclusive. I love to be the first to break the story. It happens some of the time, not all of the time. Uh, it's always a pleasure. But at the same time, if a restaurant isn't brand new and yet it's worth recommending for reasons of who's behind it, what it's doing, the neighborhood it's breaking into in the sense of nobody's gone there before, there can be reasons to cover it. Right. How, how about trying all these restaurants that you cover? Because I'm one of these people who, I mean, my solo dining came a lot from the fact that I want to just try all the restaurants, and a lot of times it's just easier to show up yourself. So do you, when you, when you, you cover a lot of places, are you interested in trying to, to get to the, all of them? Well, I get to them, the important ones, the one that's the headliner, I will go and visit and interview a chef and talk to people and maybe try the food because sometimes I'm reporting a couple of weeks, a week or two before the restaurant actually opens. I'm doing my reporting. However, uh, in terms of discussing exclusives and breaking news, we don't like to run a story on a restaurant that is opening, not opening for two or three weeks. It doesn't serve our readers. Mm -hmm. uh, we might be first with it, and so, okay, you chalk one off to that, but readers who want to go to the restaurant will be frustrated, and they don't read that carefully to realize it's not opening for two weeks, so then we get angry mail, well, it wasn't open, or the website isn't working, and blah, blah, blah. So we tend not to uh, do anything that's not within a week or so of the opening. As, but then we do previews in the fall. And for instance, today, I did a looking, kind of looking ahead headliner on <clears throat> the restaurant that's opening in the fall in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Now, that's a sh long shot mm -hmm. for me, but we were offered a co-exclusive with the Philadelphia Inquirer <clears throat> on this new restaurant. They're renovating the in whole interior of the museum, and here's this restaurant designed by Frank Gehry. And so we felt it was worth uh, covering, particularly we had a really nice rendering of uh, what the interior would look like. So uh, we went ahead with it. But that's really unusual. Yeah. No, I, I read your column. I mean, I, your column is a must read. 
and and I, it was exciting to learn that. So um, I'm glad you wrote about it. And it'll probably show up in a short item when it opens. Because mm-hmm. then people can go. Right. That makes sense. Okay. Let's take a little break, and then we're going to come back. We're going to talk more with Florence Fabricant. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Just for me, girl. Please don't give none away. You're visiting the in-laws this weekend. They've asked you to bring wine. You need a bottle that says, I'm laid back enough that I didn't think about this choice for hours. But also, I've graduated from Two Buck Chuck, proving I can provide for your daughter and our future children. Where to go from here? Just ask Vivino. Vivino knows feeling pressured in the wine aisle can sour the whole experience. But with the largest wine inventory... Vivino gives you the best price on personalized picks based on your taste profile, then ships them right to your door. Scan wines, compare reviews, save your favorites, and even get unlimited free shipping with Vivino Premium, plus a free 30-day trial. So, when that next visit rolls around, you know exactly what that dry Alsatian Riesling says about your commitment to your mother-in-law's Sunday roast. Visit vivino.com heritage to stock up. Vivino. Wine made easy. I oh, want you save it, baby. I oh, want you save all your pumpkin pie. I oh, want you save all your pumpkin pie. I oh, want you save all. Welcome your back to pie. All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Florence Fabricant of the New York Times. So you've You've been covering restaurants and food for a long time. What, what are the biggest changes in the hospitality industry uh, as far as, uh, you know, I don't want to say trends, but just, just as, as far as um, the style of restaurants or the style and things that you're covering and uh, that, that, you know, that you've noticed over the years that stand out the most? Well, this doesn't have to do as much with style of restaurants, but I would say that Social media and the internet have wrought an enormous change. Yeah, And uh, to the point where chefs frankly produce Instagram-ready food, it's no longer about the flavor. It's about what looks pretty on the plate. And uh, it's a little annoying. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, got a, it's got a downside. Um, and I think... The way restaurants pay attention to social media has also affected what they do in a big way, because um, everyone's a critic. True. Do you? I know you were. I you have an account on Twitter, um, and you you were you were doing you were you were active on it for a bit. Well, I wasn't. People do it for okay. me because <laughs> I frankly, Sherry, I can't take the time. I really, really can't deal with it. I've got so much, the emails I've got to plow through and people say to me, well, you know, you can just erase a bunch of them. Sometimes buried in an email, I'll find something useful. So you never know. So I give each one at least a glance before I hit the trash bucket. Um, 
but it's hugely time consuming. It really is. So do you do you spend or any time on Instagram or do you? No. Yeah. Not. Interested. I don't photograph my food. I'm barely on Facebook. I don't want to share my life with the world. I really don't. They know enough about me by reading what I write, and that's fine. But I don't want them, I don't need to discuss what I had for breakfast or what shoes I decide to wear or where I'm traveling tomorrow or any of that. I want, I want my privacy right, as much as possible. Yeah, I get it. As someone that who, I mean, I'm I'm in a different position in a sense, being, and I'm I I um I enjoy social media. I do find it to be very time consuming, and I'm also curious to see where it's going to go. Uh, what's next? Mm-hmm. And and who, we'll you know we'll see a year from now what the conversation's like. But uh, yeah, I certainly agree. It's it's changed the industry. It's changed the industry. The other changes I've seen is. Um, Successful restaurants are spawning more restaurants, and the importance of the restaurant group cannot be minimized because that appears to be the secret to success. If you have three restaurants, if one of them is even your flagship where you're the chef and you are doing the most amazing food, and yet that restaurant is barely breaking even. If you've got two other properties that are doing gangbusters, that's fine. They'll support your flagship and the whole uh, the whole combination makes for success. And you see much more of that. You see everybody wants to go to Las Vegas because they anything from a kiosk to a restaurant, they can find some measure of success uh, that way. And the other big th- change I've seen in the last, I would say the past two years, is this fast, casual, every, throw everything in a bowl. And don't have a waiter and have a counter and let people pick their own food and throw it all in a bowl and they're happy sitting down and scarfing it down. Um, to me, that's not dining. And there are uh, chefs who are coming up with new formulas for the fast, casual, which is cheaper both in terms of the economy of the restaurant and for the customer so I can understand the reason for that uh it's like when Danny Meyer opened Gramercy Tavern you know decades ago he had the cafe in front that became almost a formula for a lot of fine restaurants because they complemented each other and you could manipulate a price point that way. Uh, no table cause, cheaper for the restaurant. Noisier for the restaurant, but who cares? Uh, table uh, Dish towels instead of napkins. I mean, you can look around and on and on and on and make a list and see what, what has changed. Right. Yeah, industry news on my show last week or two weeks ago, we talked about the fine casual, the fast casual, and the the no, the service and how or the less service, and I mean the restaurants that are trying to make it. But mm-hmm. yeah, it will be interesting to see if that stays on or or what's next. Yeah. Let me ask you my question for my last guest. I had on episode one eighty two Jenny Dirksen. She's the national director of chef and culinary relations for Share Our Strength No Kid Hungry. 
So she said, you are the undisputed dean of restaurant reporting and have been for a very long time. In a day and age where the internet often eschews journalist principles in favor of reporting rumors or hearsay, how have you managed to keep your integrity and remain so relevant? Well, I don't report rumors. <laughs> you know, there you it's, have it. It's it's a practical consideration, Sherry, because our space is limited. You know, if more people wanted to advertise, we'd have more pages of print. And the interesting thing is, in this digital age, everybody wants to see it in print. It's such an irony. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, with limited space, even though it may appear online. What happens is if you report a rumor and then the rumor turns out to be totally false or won't, doesn't come about, then you've got to report the fact that, oh, what we reported two weeks ago, because this is the way the New York Times would function, what we reported two weeks ago isn't going to happen. Well, that's a total waste. So it's easier just to avoid the whole thing. Right. And in terms of integrity, I mean, we fact check and uh, interview and don't just pick up from somebody else's column. And, you know, I may read something on Eater, for example, or Grub Street that I didn't know about, but I'm not just going to repeat that. I will go to the source and dig till I find the source and get the information uh, and get quotes by myself and find out contact information from people so that our fact checker, and we have fact checkers, so that our fact checker can verify. So that's what we do. Yeah, no, that's, and that's why you are you and, and everyone respects you. <laughs> well, I'm very lucky because yeah. it's, because it's who I'm writing for. I'm really, I'm really lucky and that can't be minimized. Yeah, but to to maintain to be with the New York Times for so long, um, it's that's that's incredible too. You know, um, I don't know. I was someone who jumped around <laughs> jobs a lot, and until I started working for myself, and so I'm always impressed with people when they're with a company for mm-hmm. a long amount of time. It says a lot about the company. It says a lot about the person. Well, um, yeah, I would say that. Uh, I'm trusted uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, I take my responsibility very, very, very seriously. You don't know what hell you can go through at the times by misspelling something. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. What about, you've also written many cookbooks. Is it 12 cookbooks? I have that right? All the recipes were stolen. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> That's exactly what I figured. Um, uh, do you like writing books? I mean, I, I mean, we've done 12 of them. That's, that's a lot of books. You know, they, they, they come my way. And, uh, for example, the uh, wine with food that I did with Eric Asimov, here we had all of this material. I had done all of these recipes over how many years? And it was just begging to be a book. So why not? Um, The one I had the most fun with was the book I did for Sloan Kettering called Park Avenue Potluck. First of all, I love the title. And it was recipes from 
the Upper East Side ladies who support Sloan Kettering, their volunteer group, and, you know, people like Nam Kempner at mm-hmm. the time and so forth. Um, and when I took on this assignment <clears throat> to do this book, my husband Richard said, you don't want to do this book. The recipes are going to be awful. It's all going to be cream chicken. And I said, well, let's give it a shot. And I went through 400 recipes I insisted that none of them be recipes that had appeared in other publications. They had to have a, some kind of a backstory and had to be original in some way. And then I wrestled them to the ground. I mean, no tomato soup and kind of ingredients or bouillon cubes and ingredients like that uh, where I couldn't authenticate the ingredients. I just didn't use the recipe. And from 400 recipes, I got it down to like 110. Wow. Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, that's still a lot of recipes. Yeah. And then for City Harvest, I did a a book that was based on the recipes of chefs who support City Harvest. And then again, you know, dealing with chef recipes, that's another story. (laughs) Or just chefs. (laughs) Well, you know, when you get a chef's recipe that's been broken down from a quantity to serve 40 people... And you have a vinaigrette dressing that calls for six kinds of vinegar, uh, you know, a, f- a few t- a tablespoon of each. I went back to the chef and said, I'll give you two vinegars. You pick. <laughs> yeah, get it down. That's smart. Do you have any plans to do any other books? I'm working on a book for the East Hampton Ladies Village Improvement Society. It all ties back to the beginning. Yeah, it right? sort of does. Yeah. yeah but... They do cookbooks like almost every 15, 20 years. They've, they've, done, they've done them since the, the late 1900s, uh-huh. uh, little spiral-bound things, and there's a lot of history there. This one is going to be somewhat different. It's not coming out till 20 because it will be the 125th anniversary of the organization. But... Um, it's a little different because there'll be much more emphasis on celebrities. Okay. Well, stay tuned for that. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to take another break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to play my speed round game and talk some industry news. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Moxie Rosenblum, my dad, Harry Rosenblum, hosts Feast Your Ears on Heritage Radio Network. Right now, HRN is having a summer membership drive. Becoming a member is so easy, and you'll help support shows like my dad's. You can sign up for a one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Florence Fabricant. It's time for my speed round game. So what this is is I name a, a few things. I give you a, a choice, an either-or situation, such as chocolate or vanilla, and you pick your preference. Okay. Okay, here we go. Eat in or eat out? Both. 
<laughs> wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Wine. Tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Small plates or large plates? I would say large plates. How about communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? I kind of like all-inclusive. Okay. Never know. I never know what anyone's going to say in any of these. How about writing newspaper columns or writing cookbooks? Newspaper columns. couple more. Being recognized or being anonymous? Anonymous. I thought you might say that. Cheese plate or dessert? Cheese. Manhattan or Brooklyn? Are we talking cocktails or destination? I have to say, I think you're like, a few people have said that, and I love it. Um, I was referring to destination, but you can answer it however you see fit. I would say Manhattan. On both counts. On both? Okay. (laughs) A Manhattan in Manhattan? Yeah. All right. Great. And that's the game. Fun. Fun. Yeah. So. Both on the eat in and eat out, though, huh? Yeah, I I do both. I I love to cook, and I like to eat out. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, so industry news. Uh, Article I picked out on Grub Street. Starbucks says it will phase out plastic straws. This is by Nikita Richardson. So this came out, it was uh, online yesterday, about how Starbucks is following suit of Seattle, which I read was the first city to ban plastic straws uh, in the U.S., and that they are planning to go strawless by 2020, keeping an estimated 1 billion straws out of landfills. I'm looking at a plastic straw right now. <laughs> how do you, I mean, I don't know, how do you feel about this? What's your take on, on straws? Or I mean, I was thinking how the green straw at Starbucks has really been a big part of its identity. You know, you see the yeah, green straw yeah. and you know, you know it's Starbucks. You know, the truth is, I don't drink a lot of drinks with straws. Okay. I mean, I'm not a soft drink drinker. Mm-hmm. I'm a water drinker, drinker, and I don't need a straw for that. Uh, I don't drink wine with a straw or beer with a straw or cocktails sometimes you know like a tall drink they'll put a straw in but just as soon leave it out I think anything like that is a good move I'm waiting to see what happens with chopsticks oh interesting simply because the amount of chopsticks I mean like everything else imagine the chopsticks the chopsticks are disposable right? right I don't know how much of it is recycled yeah, I don't know. I feel maybe there's a few fancy places that have, um, you know, have permanent chopsticks, but then that's also something that with theft that you have to think about with restaurants, well, people taking your chopsticks. No, but for the most part, your ramen house or mm-hmm. yakitori or even, I mean, you can get rid of chopsticks by eating sushi with your fingers, which is perfectly acceptable, and I do. But um, if you think about... You know, the Chinese takeout always comes with a couple of pair of chopsticks and a wooden in a paper, and you rip them apart and then throw them away. Uh, do you don't recycle chopsticks at home? I do keep some because I use them for cooking and I use mm-hmm. them for serving, and I don't need see any reason to buy them. But I think chopsticks are the next after straws. 
I mean, you're. I'm sure you're. You're right on that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this. I. I. You know, this. This is. I. I mean, people do like straws. I like straws. I. Well, I. I drink straws. I think the most with. Uh, with the. Cold coffee drinks, yeah, iced coffee in the summer. Well, you know, in Suffolk County now, if you don't bring your own bag, they charge you five, uh, five cents for a plastic bag. And there are other communities mm-hmm. where they charge even more. It would seem to me that if you know you're going to an Asian restaurant, why not bring your own chopsticks? I bet you have them. Uh, and have the Asian restaurants request. Uh, because I think that... Uh, any bit of garbage you can avoid is mm-hmm. to the good. And um, just thinking about the billions and billions and think of it worldwide and think of China and those countries, thank heaven they don't use chopsticks, particularly in India, because those populations and people using them every day and in China, not China as much as Japan. Japan, they're disposable. Nobody recycles them, right? Or that I'm aware of. Yeah, not that I'm aware. Of. I'm thinking. I'm thinking of. Well, this is a big move. Being with Starbucks being such a huge coffee company, I'm thinking what's the what's the Chinese restaurant or the you know like maybe someone that gets behind it that yeah. starts that movement. Well, I don't know. I mean, I would think some chain of of Japanese ramen houses or what have you, or a city could start it. But I don't, you know, this, the idea of bringing your own just popped into my head just now because I had been thinking about chopsticks and I'd never thought about, well, suppose I bring my own. I brought my own when I was in China because I didn't trust the ones that I might be given as to how clean they were because they didn't come wrapped. So I had my own set of chopsticks when I traveled in China. Uh, why not? Why not? It's an easy, it's an easy thing to carry. It's like carrying, you know, having a pen in your purse. I mean, yeah. it's not, and if take you much know, room. and you know, chances are, you know, you're going to be eating Asian food and be handed a, a pair of chopsticks. So there's yeah. our movement, kiddo. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on board with it. I mean, I think, yeah, people might start, you know, carrying around straws too. We'll see. I don't know. Um, well, you know, they, there are cocktail companies, cocktail gear companies that sell copper straws and, and uh, uh, fancy straws, yeah. you know, with that bend in them. And you right. could bring, bring your own straw. Yeah, because I'm not a fan of the, the paper ones that disintegrate um, <coughs> after you've had two sips of your drink. But um, we'll see. Okay, we're, we're on a movement with the, with the chopsticks. okay so the other article i picked out was from your paper the new york times because the review today i was really excited about uh this is the restaurant review by pete wells and it was titled it's not fake french it's frenchette and he gave frenchette the restaurant new restaurant in tribeca three stars and um have you been there I was there very early on and didn't have a full meal we stopped in for a late bite one night Um, so I can't really judge, Mm -hmm. but, you know, I'm really familiar with Riyadh and Lee's food and, um, I trust Pete implicitly. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've actually, I was there twice very early on. It's kind of rare for me to be someplace so quickly 
I usually I'm one of those I'm checking out new places always one one time here and then maybe I get back but I had plans with friends and I ended up going back twice and I loved it and it felt very familiar it felt I, I mean I I I, I, I want to go back again. Like there was something about it beyond just the food being excellent that just felt very, very comfortable. And, and uh, Pete wrote in here about how uh, they're pushing out solid food that should keep it around for a long time. And he said it's a safe bet. And being, I think I, I, think I got that from mm-hmm. being there, that it felt like, yeah, this is going to make it type of restaurant. I love the look of it. Yeah, it's very pretty. It's cool. It's um, not really what I call pretty. I think it's... It's got a classic look. Okay, yeah. It isn't heavily designed, but it evokes an era. It's definitely French without hitting you in the face, and it's not as as tricked up as, say, Balthazar, which is, uh, you know, Keith McNally has a talent for recreating a mood and so forth. This is a little subtler. but yeah, I agree kind of the same sort of thing and um you know i'm looking forward to to sitting down for dinner there if i can get in <laughs> <laughs> well uh, yeah that's uh that maybe that easy to get maybe the 5 30 10 30 p.m <laughs> reservations uh, i assume right now they're they're quite quite busy and quite happy yeah uh, so i would yeah. think so. <laughs> I would think so, too. So congratulations to them. And uh, we're going to take one more break. We're going to come back. I have my solar dining experience. Then we have the final question. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. So this week, it's at Kish Cash. Here's the rundown. The location, 455 Hudson Street, West Village, New York City. The concept, North African Jewish cuisine and traditional Moroccan couscous being dubbed as a couscous bar. The chef and owner, Anat Edmani of Tom Barbolanat and formerly of Balabusta. So why did I go? Because I'm a fan of Anat's cooking and uh, from her other places, and I, you know, wanted to check out the new one. So my experience. 
So I arrived for an early Sunday dinner. I was warmly greeted by my server, Charles, and I was taken care of like I was family, even though I just was a walk-in. I did spot Anat across the dining room, and she came over to say hello, and then she kindly sent me out something to taste, which was really great, and I'll tell you more about that. So what did I get? I had the chicken tagine with olive and three lemon sauce over Moroccan-style couscous, I had a side of matbucha, which is slow-cooked tomato, peppers, garlic, and chili. And I also had some hot sauce on the side. And then I sampled what Anat sent out was her short rib meatball. So my take, the chicken was perfectly cooked. It fell right off the bone. I'd say I didn't even need my knife. It was just it was just really delicious chicken. And it was lovely over the, the couscous, which was light, soft, and airy, and it absorbed all the flavors. And uh, the matbucha that went with this added a tomatoey flavor that was really nice. And I loved the meatball. It was delicious. The ambiance. It's a casual, intimate space. It has a lot of natural light because there's these big windows up front. It's decorated with vibrant tiles. It has a counter in the back for quick service by day and it has table service at night. And seating-wise, there's a banquette. There's uh, some, a few counter seats and there's a large communal table. I'd say it's perfect for solo dining or dinner with friends. Interesting tidbits. Kish Kash is named for the broad wood rim sieve used in the production of couscous. I think I got that from the New York Times. <laughs> and according to Grub Street, Anat's uh, childhood Sabbath dinners inspired, inspired her to have a communal table, like a Shabbat table. So personal fun fact, I was there on Gay Pride Parade Day, and so it was very festive in the West Village. There was a lot going on, and it was just a, it was a very happy time, and I had a very happy meal. So the cost was $18. That's not including tax and gratuity, and the meatball she sent out was a gift. Would I go back? Yes, I would, and the website is kishkashnyc.com. Have you been down there? I know you wrote about it. Yeah, well, I met with her there, but I haven't had, I haven't dined yet. Yeah, it's really great. And then you know, I was I was looking in New York Times at your your past column, which we didn't talk about with the your wine pairing. And I I saw you recently wrote about Moroccan chicken salad mm-hmm. pairing with Chardonnay. I was like, oh, it all ties together. <laughs> well, I'm a big fan of Morocco. I've been to Morocco several times. Oh, really? Yeah, I've never been. Yeah, it's wonderful. Put it on my list. Yeah. Okay, so it's time for the final question. So next week, my guest is Brandon Hoy. He is the co-owner of Roberta's here, right here, where we're sitting, in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And I'm excited to talk to him. So, Florence, what would you like to ask Brandon? I would say my question would be how, after all of these years, and all of this hype, and all of the renown, how they've managed to keep Roberta's Roberta's. (laughs) I will find out. I mean, it's about integrity, and I'm sure he's been approached to open in Las Vegas and Tokyo and goodness knows where. But uh, I would, I would, I don't know. I would imagine that uh, he has not been seduced by the, such offers, and uh, I'm really impressed. Great, I will find out, and I'm sure he, he he'll love hearing you that you said that. So thank you. And that's the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I have to say, I've I've been doing this show now for several years, and I've interviewed many people who I highly respect. And 
but to have you here and to do this show with you is just meant so much to me because um, I've known you, I've worked with you, and I just, um, I greatly admire everything you've done and your whole career, and so thank you. Well, you're welcome, and comments like that are very humbling. <laughs> oh, well, you deserve it, so you're welcome. <laughs> and thank you for coming on. My guest today has been Florence Fabricant. She's a longtime food and wine writer for the New York Times. You can find their websites, nytimes.com. She has a Twitter account, but she's not that active on <laughs> FlowFab. <laughs> but you can go to at NYTFood, and there's uh, lots, of, lots of news from the New York Times there. On social media, you can find me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My website's BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. It's our membership drive at Heritage Radio Network. It's going until July 31st. Uh, we would love for you to become a member. Again, you go to the website, heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate, and that will help keep us on the air. Uh, also, uh, if you go to any of the other apps, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, you can leave reviews for the show, subscribe. Uh, would, love, would love your feedback. Okay, so thank you again, Florence. Thanks to my engineer today, Matt. I'm Sherry Bayer, and thank you for being part of All, All in the Industry. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.